The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about sex education, why we started teaching it in schools in the first place, how it's changed over the years, and what it might look like in the future. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Jonathan Zimmerman, a professor of education and history at New York University. A former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher, Jonathan is a frequent op-ed contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other popular newspapers and magazines. In 2008, he received NYU's Distinguished Teaching Award, its highest honor for teaching. He has written five books, and he's here today to talk about his most recent book, Too Hot to Handle, A Global History of Sex Education. John, welcome to Science for the People. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So when did the idea of teaching some sort of sex education in schools first come up? Well, it first came up uh, in the United States around the turn of the 20th century when cities like New York and Chicago experienced these big venereal disease outbreaks. And the reason there was a panic is that uh, middle-class white people were contracting VD from prostitutes, which has always been a major conduit for STDs, and then infecting their wives. And this created a huge panic and a very racialized one, uh, because the idea was if, if immigrants or darker people are doing this, it's not such a problem. But if white people are, and it's affecting their fertility. It's what Theodore Roosevelt called race suicide. So this created a big panic and a movement to try to educate young people, especially, about sex and its dangers. So when before we started thinking about teaching sex ed in schools, how did people learn about sex? I mean, I'm assuming people either got knowledge from somewhere like their parents, or was it just kind of more of a learn-by-doing sort of thing? <laughs> um, well, um, I... I think, you know, historically across time, um, they got information from family and peers and also from mass media. You know, there was, after the age of the printing press, there was a big advice literature about sex in Europe and North America. And um, here in the United States, you might have heard the name Sylvester Graham because he was the founder of the Graham Cracker. He was a vegetarian and abolitionist and all kinds of other things. He was also an author of sex advice books. Um, about keeping yourself clean and continent and all that. Uh, so, you know, there were a number of different conduits for, for that kind of knowledge. I had no idea that sex advice columns had been around for that long. Yeah, well, he, he wrote books, but also there were new, you know, newspapers got in on the act. They, they wouldn't have called themselves sex advice columns. They would have called themselves, you know, hygiene advice. But it was the same idea. Was it the same types of questions we get today? I mean, I presume you probably wouldn't get the same kind of in-your-face, really frank uh, type of questions that maybe something oh, like Dan Savage would get. But how, how well, upfront were not. they? It, it tended to be much more elliptical. Um, but, you know, um, many of the concerns, although they were expressed in different idiom, were the same. So am I okay? Am I normal? Am I doing it the right way? And most of all, what are the dangers here and how can I protect myself from them? Uh, dangers being conceived as anything from conception itself to disease. It kind of makes me feel even better to know that people have been asking the am I normal question for a really long time. Oh, they absolutely have. <laughs> um, uh, but I think I can emphasize that 
especially in the schools for for young people. Um, the focus at the birth of school-based sex ed was less on am I normal or am I doing it right than here's what not to do. Um, sex is something that should be reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. Everything outside of that is taboo and interdicted. That was the theme of school-based sex ed. So what was the actual content of the class? If that's the theme, what types of things would have actually been taught in that class at the turn of the century? It's an interesting question because there was a great paradox in sex ed because earlier you mentioned learning by doing, which was kind of a paradigmatic mantra of 20th century school reform. But when it comes to what I call the sex, drugs, and rock and roll curriculum, i.e. sex ed, alcohol ed, drug ed, it's learning for not doing, right? You're trying to persuade people not to behave in a certain way, and you don't want to get them interested in doing it, which also contradicts another common mantra of modern education, which is engage the kids and interest them. Here, you're trying to suppress an interest. So to try to resolve or maybe, you know, evade this paradox, the curriculum focused a lot on plants and animals. Um, this is, of course, from whence we get the term the birds and the bees. The reason they use plant and animal metaphors is they're trying to teach the basics of reproduction without making people interested in the human kind. So you talk about the pollination of flowers, and then eventually you get to frogs and always rabbits. Rabbits are big, right? But not people. Because if you start talking about people doing it, then maybe the kids are going to want to do it. And that's precisely what you're trying to suppress. So it seems like sex ed was really a lot about what not to do and didn't have a lot of advice at all about what to do. Right, right. But sex ed is ed. It's education. And I think that the transatlantic comparison is really interesting and important here. The kind of VD panic that I was describing earlier, it's also sweeping through places like London and Berlin and Paris, of course. But what's interesting is in the early 20th century, the response in Europe is generally not an educational one. It's it's a legal one. So we should either try to interdict prostitution more strongly or maybe re-register them and inspect them. Um, uh, it wasn't considered a job of the schools to address. Um, here in the United States, and also I should say in Canada, which was uh, uh, um, kind of uh, uh, very, very, very much working in the same idiom, education is the answer. Um, uh, it was, as you put out, as you pointed out, a negative kind of education, but it's education, nevertheless, it's school-based at a time when other democracies don't think schools should be addressing the subject at all. How much general awareness was there about things like VD and other STIs at the time? Well, I mean, I think the answer of sex education was not enough. There was a tremendous amount of misinformation, of course, about how you got it and how it should be treated. Um, remember, before 1906 in the United States, drugs are almost all over the counter, right? So there's a huge amount of myth-making and misinformation about how to both diagnose and treat STDs. So 
I think the short answer is there was a lot of information, but imperfect knowledge. So who were some of the early proponents of sex education in schools? Well, in the United States, I mean, kind of, you know, name a famous educator. I mean, almost everyone who um, was interested in social reform was interested in sex ed. So a good example would be Charles Eliot, who was the president of Harvard University. Another would be John D. Rockefeller, who actually financed a lot of early research about sex and sex education uh, because he thought it was, you know, such an important part of what he called the progressive dream. You know, the progressive dream is to use knowledge to help us all behave in more publicly spirited ways. And, and sex ed was very much part of that vision. And Rockefeller actually put some of his own money uh, up for oh, sex education as well. Definitely. You know, um, you know, trying to, um, uh, uh, you know, trainings for teachers and publicity for it, for sure. Was that common? Was that like a common way that sex education programs got funding? Well, um, you know, I, like a lot of things in the United States, often you begin in a kind of private civil society mode and then you move into the state. So a lot of early sex ed, like the kind John D. Rockefeller financed, was private in the sense that, you know, you had a... Um, you know, a a um, civil society organization that was promoting it, sending representatives out to different places, including schools, and eventually they insert themselves in the schools themselves. This is a very common pattern in political development in the U.S. It is probably going to come as a surprise to nobody that the idea of introducing sex ed was met by some very passionate and vocal protests. So uh, what was some of the early pushback against it, and who were some of the really vocal critics? Well, I think that in both Europe and the United States, you start with the Catholic Church. Um, uh, one of the popes actually delivered an encyclical against what he called the disgusting idea of sex education. And um, the, the basic argument was that this should be a familial and especially a religious matter, a clerical matter. It wasn't a proper matter for the state to address. Um, but it wasn't just religious objectors. You know, um, Sigmund Freud wrote one of his two papers um, about sex ed around 1907. And in the first one, he said, you know, this is never going to work so long as priests, quote unquote, Mohammed Catholics had control of schools, because he said, you know, a priest will never admit that humans have an animal nature. But he was wrong. He wasn't wrong about the religious objections to sex ed. He was wrong that those objections were only religious. So even as schools in Europe become secular institutions, and even in parties like the socialist parties, which are explicitly anti-clerical, there's still a huge amount of objection to sex ed. Um, really, the problem is democracy, and it was George Bernard Shaw who put his finger on this. Uh, Shaw was himself an advocate of sex ed, but he gave a really interesting speech in the late 20s where he says to a bunch of sex educators, he said, look, don't think that democracy is your friend, because the more that people get to participate and get to vote, the more they're going to object to sex ed. And he was right. Um, so as these countries democratize, more people get a voice, and they exert that voice against sex ed. They don't think it's the prerogative of schools. On that topic, um, a common theme in the debate over sex education over time seems to be about who owns or has the final say over a child, uh, the parents or the state. Uh, can you walk us through that argument? 
Well, look, I mean, I think that's still the, the basic issue in education everywhere, right? Um, we all know that the family is the primary educator, but we also know that we have these other institutions that are supposed to um, in sometimes build on what the family does, sometimes compensate for what it doesn't, right? And most of all, these institutions are supposed to teach us certain skills and especially um, certain values and ideas of citizenship that we share regardless of our upbringings, right? But we all live in primary communities called families, and parents are foremost educators, and they're jealous of those prerogatives. They still are. So how has this argument played out over the time period that you looked at for sex ed um, and in different places? I mean, is there one side of this argument that consistently seems to win out or is it does it vary between time and place? Sex ed itself has varied tremendously across time and place. Um, but I think there's always been parental resistance to it. That resistance, of course, has changed at different times as sex ed and the world changes. So, for example, in the U.S. and Canada, before HIV, people who objected to sex ed simply thought, just like Catholics going back to the early 20th century, that the school had no business interfering in the subject. After HIV, they changed their tune. They still object to certain kinds of sex ed, but... They actually now want their own kind. It's called abstinence-only education. That's sex ed, too. Um, and in this case, it was brought to you by people and parents who pre-HIV simply thought the subject was inappropriate for schools. So they still object to certain kinds of sex ed, but they are also changing their tune and in a way liberating it. Um, that is, I think... I think people like me who have been critical of abstinence-only education often don't realize what a concession it represented on the part of conservatives who, before HIV, simply thought that schools shouldn't touch the subject, that it was too hot to handle. So how have the topics included in sex ed curriculums changed over time? Well, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that almost everywhere they become more explicit. Um, so in the United States, for example, in the 1950s, you had something called family life education, which for the first time actually talked about human beings having sex. Of course, as per the, the uh, phrase, you can tell that it, it was insisting that this behavior take place within the family. So it was approving a certain kind of human sexual behavior and tabooing other kinds. Um, in the 1960s, you got more attention to subjects that had been previously um, ignored, including in certain places abortion, including contraception, including even in homosexuality, but also huge objections to including those terms. So after the Second World War and countries started to develop their own versions of sex ed curriculums, how did those start to differ from each other? What, what happened was that in Western Europe, um, which again had been kind of slow to develop sex ed, after the Second World War, they developed a different model of it. And um, the model was centered not on avoiding negative outcomes, which was the American and the Canadian model. It was based on trying to help each individual experience sex positively. 
Um, uh, so it wasn't so much trying to ward off something like VD. It was to try to help each person develop what was called a healthy sexual life. Um, and the pioneer of all of this is Sweden, um, which is very proud of the fact that it was the first country to require sex ed nationally, which it did in 1955. And the founder of modern sex ed in Sweden is a, is, is a national hero. Her, her face is on postage stamps and there are, uh, sculpt, uh, there are uh, sculptures of her, statues of her around Stockholm and, and, and things like that. Um, and what I find so fascinating about this difference is in some way it runs counter to other kinds of transatlantic differences that Americans tend to tell in which um, we're all about the individual and over there in Europe they're all about the collectivity. I think with sex ed it was almost the inverse. Um, here in the United States, and also I think mostly in Canada, there's a huge amount of concern about collective outcomes, collective consequences, but in Sweden and then later in places like Germany and Holland, much more attention to the individual and what sex means or um, should mean to him or her. What was the reaction like in those places with that type of model of sex education? I mean, it, it seems fairly clear that parents, uh, many parents will protest various forms of sex ed uh, as an almost but maybe not quite universal. So so what would have been the reaction in Sweden when they first started to push in this direction? Well, there was protest, right? I mean, you know, um, uh, uh, the Lutheran Church is the state church of Sweden. And there were members of the Lutheran Church that protested quite vociferously. Um, uh, and um, there were there were parents that uh, went to their schools. There were teachers who resisted this either because they didn't agree with it or they were too embarrassed by it. Um, but I think it's fair to say that in countries like Sweden and Holland, this kind of new uh, liberal approach became fairly well inscribed and eventually fairly accepted until the last 20 years where you get a new kind of objection, and that's from immigrants. Um, you know, countries like Sweden were quite monochrome for most of their history. But in the past 20 years, they've seen enormous waves of migration from um, North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. And so sex ed has become newly controversial and is facing a new kind of objection of the kind that you've also seen in Ontario with the objections to the, the new sex ed guidelines there. It's interesting to me that uh, as the sort of generations went on, there was less and less objection uh, about the sex ed curriculums from the sort of native Swedes. Is that potentially because they would have gone through that sex ed themselves and would have had something to to sort of ping their memory and go, oh, I remember that. That wasn't so bad. Or is it just, you know, something else? Do we know why there was less and less pushback? Or was it just, you know, people were used to it at that point? Or they well, discovered think, that the protest was not working? Yeah, no, I think that's part of it. Obviously, people are socialized to a new way of thinking. But what I want to emphasize is that schools aren't the only agent of socialization. And indeed, when it comes to sex, they're probably the least important one, right? These are societies that are changing in every way. Right. Remember, I mean, Sweden legalizes all forms of, pros of, of pornography. Some other countries legalize prostitution and certain kinds of drugs. Right. I think in the sex ed discussion, there's way too much discussion of schools. Obviously, my work is about schools, but one of the things I learned in doing my work is that schools have never been the most important agent of sex ed. 
Um, so, you know, I think the answer to your question is countries like Sweden are liberalizing their entire society. And so um, uh, there's going to be less objection to a kind of liberal sex ed. So uh, over the years, and it seems like this is a problem that's never really gone away and, and has been with us as long as sex education has been around, um, teachers have reliably been caught in the middle of this debate over and over and over again, uh, no matter what they try and do or what the curriculum, the formal curriculum says they should be teaching. It seems like teachers really can't win. Uh, no, I think that's right. You know, um, I think that they're charged with, in, in many places, a kind of untenable task. And one of the themes of my book is how many different places teachers did feel caught in the middle, and often for different reasons. You know, um, since you mentioned contraception, you know, one of the interesting stories is China, because after they instituted the one-child policy, which, by the way, they're now backing off from, there's a big push to do sex ed in the schools, and the reason is, obviously, people are going to be delaying childbirth for longer, right? And they're going to be reproducing less. Well, this raises the question of how you delay, you know, how you reproduce less, right? Um, uh, and basically, people are going to have a longer time of reproductive years before they reproduce, because we're going to delay all this. Um, but uh, even in a country like China, which is in many ways a very authoritarian country, it was very difficult to implement sex ed, um, in part because teachers feel caught in the middle. Why? Some parents object to it. They say it's shameful. But interestingly, the, the more common objection from the parents is, this isn't going to be on the Gaokao. This isn't going to be on the national test. So why are you wasting any time on it? Um, in countries that have this huge national test and everything rides on it, any subject that isn't on the test is seen as extraneous and um, and a frill. Um, and so teachers are, they get an instruction, you know, an order from the top to teach the subject, and suddenly their parents and they're saying, why are you wasting my kid's time with that, right? What he needs is a good score on the math or the English test, so let's get to that. Has there ever been any training offered for teachers who teach this class? Anything formal, any kind of guidelines given to them on, on how to do this? Um, yeah, definitely. You know, in all kinds of different countries, you know, there are, um, you know, there are health classes, you know, that people take as part of teacher training. Um, and, you know, in the United States, often people who are trained to become phys ed teachers get training in this. Um, incidentally, the reason that um, sex ed often happened in PE in the United States is twofold. Um, first of all, it was a subject everyone had to take, right? When we started to track and divide our schools, kids had different curricula, right? But phys ed was something that everyone had to take. And secondly, it was gender segregated historically. Mm. Right? Most places still is. And so for that reason, too, it was thought to be an appropriate venue for sex ed. Um, and so if you look at um, the, the, the preparation of phys ed teachers, um, you see it, you absolutely see it, uh, you know, attention to the subject and growing over time. Presumably, uh, sex education has been gender segregated since its inception. Um, ha has there been or were there any early moves or early attempts to try and make it ungender segregated? Well, you know, there have been over time, and I can emphasize that um, uh, uh, one of the places that that's happened is in independent schools or 
private schools. You know, um, this discussion has all been about public schools, right? Um, uh, or, you know, state-run schools, which are obviously the primary venue of education in most countries. But obviously, in the United States and Canada, there are lots of private schools and parochial schools. And there you see all kinds of different approaches depending on the philosophy of the school. Um, so with the French schools, with the Quaker schools in the United States, you see a gender-integrated and hugely explicit kind of curriculum that you can never get away with in most public schools, not just because it's gender-integrated, but because it focuses on the questions that kids really want answered, which isn't about the sperm and the egg. It's about, okay, when do I do this, and with whom, and why, and what's the purpose of all this, um, and what's the meaning of it? Um, those are the kind of questions that kids really want to discuss. But I think because the subject is so controversial and the answers to those questions are so contested, public schools often can't get to them. But private schools can, right? Because there's a very different burden, right? I mean, you know, in a private school, it's perfectly legitimate to say to a parent who doesn't agree with your approach, well, you know, if you don't agree with our approach, I think it'd be good for you to go to a different school. That's entirely legitimate, right? Because it's a private enterprise. Public enterprise is much more complicated. Has there been any effort with private schools to try and track the success or create goals and track the success of those types of curriculums that are closer to maybe what the students want and what they're interested in finding out about? Well, that's a really interesting question because, of course, as everything with education, it raises the question of what would constitute success. And, um, you know, I think that historically in the United States especially, we've tried to measure success in behavioral terms. So a sex ed curriculum is going to be successful if the kids, you know, get pregnant less or have sex less or get fewer STDs, right? But here's the thing. There's so little sex ed in most places, including the United States, that we have no idea whether it can do that. Um, uh, and it's probably putting uh, too high a burden on the school to ask that it does so. You, you mentioned math earlier. Well, the job of the math teacher is not to get kids to behave differently on Saturday night, right? It's to help them understand math, right? Um, sex ed, in some ways, the way we've defined success and failure, has a much higher burden because it's a behavioral one, right? Um, it's measured not by understanding, but by behavior. We do have some evidence, lo and behold, that if you expose kids to a certain amount of sex ed, they'll gain more understanding, just like they will in math, right? But we have very little evidence that will alter their behavior. That doesn't mean it can it doesn't mean we should stop trying, um, but it does mean that when you hear anybody in this highly politicized question say sex ed has the following behavioral effects, either on the right, it makes the kids have more sex, or on the left, you know, it makes them use a condom, you should be very skeptical because something that only happens a few hours a year, how could you ever show that, right? Um, uh, in the United States, we're in this, in this kind of interesting spiral where there's so little sex ed that we don't know what it does, and because we do, or, or, you know, what its success rate is, um, uh, and, you know, um, uh, until, until there's more of it, we won't know. And I suppose it would probably be really hard to try and even tease apart with public versus private school, the socioeconomic borders there, because that in and of itself will make a huge difference, never mind what you do in a six-hour sex ed class once that's, a year. That's true. 
And, and I mean, just the, the last thought I'll leave you with is, you know, um, uh, if you go back to the Swedish example, um, there the curriculum was not necessarily designed to change your behavior um, or, again, keep you, quote, safe, right? Um, it was to help you develop a, a sexual identity and being, including sexual pleasure. And that's a very different kind of goal, also quite hard to measure, right? But I was in the archives in Sweden, and somebody from Ireland, which is a very conservative country, sexually compared to Sweden, uh, writes and says, why do you have such great sex ed, and why are your teen pregnancy and STD rates so low? And the guy from Sweden, the head of their sex ed organization, he writes back, very kind letter, and he said, look, um, two things. First of all, our teen pregnancy rates are lower than yours, but we don't know if that's because of sex ed, and that's really important, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it gets back to the, the question of, you know, where do kids learn about sex, right? And it's a million places, and school is the least of them. But then he says something more interesting. He says, and besides, that's not the goal. That's not the measure of success. He says, of course, we don't want any unwanted pregnancies or STDs. Nobody does, right? But he says, if you're talking about that effect, we've never even, we've never even tried to measure it because that's not the goal. He says, the goal for, for us is to help each individual learn about sex and learn to enjoy it. And that's a very different kind of success. John, thank you so much for your time today. Really interesting book. Thank you. Thanks so much. If you want to learn more about Jonathan Zimmerman or his book, Too Hot to Handle, A Global History of Sex Education, we have links to get you started on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll speak with sex advice columnist Dan Savage about what sex education in schools should include and how advice columns, websites, YouTube channels, and other online sex education resources fill the gaps. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dan Savage, a writer, TV personality, and activist best known for his political and social commentary, as well as his honest approach to sex, love, and relationships. His sex advice column, Savage Love, is syndicated in newspapers and websites internationally. He is the host of the sex advice podcast, The Savage Love Cast, has written several books, and with his husband, Terry, created the It Gets Better Project, which creates and collects video messages of support and hope for LGBT youth. Dan, welcome to Science for the People. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, first of all, I just was curious. Do you think of the advice column and podcast you run as sex education? <laughs> uh, I think that's an ancillary benefit of it. Um, it's primarily, and what I think of first when I sit down to do it, is kind of entertaining people, kind of helping people. Every question is a hypothetical to every listener or reader but one. So they need to be good questions, good hypotheticals. And what people take away when they read advice columns or listen to advice podcasts is usually the advice isn't relevant to them. And there's some entertainment value in the rubbernecking and there, but for the grace of God or for more brain cells go I. But I know from growing up really being a fan of the genre and reading a lot of advice columns, 
is sometimes the advice sticks and you file it away and you find yourself in a facing a similar circumstance later in life and you're like, I know what to do here. <laughs> I I remember what Ann Landers said about this 40 years ago. When I remember I was hearing about a situation oddly similar 12 years to this. old and read her column. Right, exactly. So you've been doing this a really long time, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it definitely seems to be kind of a growing niche online. There are a lot more online columnists. There's a lot of other podcasts. There's entire websites and YouTube channels dedicated to talking about sex and relationships. Um, right. And so there seems to be a demand out there for this kind of conversation. <laughs> Why well, do you think that is? It's also an easy conversation to have, and it's a conversation we all have. I used to say that I was lucky enough to get paid to talk about what we all talk about for free. You know, you sit down with your friends, you talk about your relationships, talk about your relationship problems. Um, and I'm one of the lucky few who monetized that. Uh, the barrier to entry is really low, though, um, when it comes to this kind of thing. And everybody feels like they're going to be a pretty good sex expert or, you know, has good advice. Advice is only an opinion about what could or should be done. Literally, you look up advice in the dictionary and it says opinion about what could or should be done. And that's really subjective. And the only qualification you need to be an advice podcaster, columnist, YouTuber is somebody asked you a question, <laughs> which, like I said, makes the barrier to entry for this gig to self-select for this gig really low. You know, 25 years ago when I started doing Savage Love, you had to get into a newspaper to be an advice columnist. And that was hard. You know, Ann Landers had all the dailies and then along came people like me and we locked up all the weeklies and getting in was hard. And now getting in is super easy. And so lots of people get in, uh, get into the, the advice racket. <laughs> it's but not all those people are very good. And one of the issues I have with a lot of, or not issues, one of the observations I've made about sex writing is, you know, it can attract, there are a lot of really great sex writers out there and a lot of people who are really good sex columnists and sex advice columnists and podcasters, you know, the barrier entry is low, but a lot of people who are really good at it and have a talent for it are jumping in. But, uh, since the subject sex relationships is so inherently interesting, you can be bad at it and still get an audience. You can be a bad advice columnist or you can be a lousy sex writer or have your head in your ass and still attract enough of an audience to wind up feeling like you must be good at this. When actually what's bringing people isn't you. What's bringing people is the inherent draw that is sex. So there are a lot of online resources that have been either around for a while or more that are sprouting up that are particularly ge geared towards uh, kids and teens. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like they're trying to fill a gap or a niche that's maybe left by not great sex education in various places of North America. Is that, do you think that's a fair statement? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We have terrible sex ed in this country. Um, we have pornography, which does a lot of the sex ed. And there is this effort, a conscious effort, to you know, Planned Parenthood or uh, Kinsey Confidential or Scarlet Teen to create reservoirs online where people can go and get the information that they need. The problem is we have a really deeply sex-negative uh, culture. Uh, you know, girls are slut-shamed uh, for showing any interest in sex, and so that creates a disincentive to go find the information you might need or want because then you're a dirty sex pervert and boys have uh, hammered into them that they're supposed to be good at this without any effort or without any uh, practice or any thought that it should come naturally. You know, girls get the slut shaming and boys get this, uh, these hangups about mastery that they're supposed to be just, you know, excellent at it without any uh, prep or, or forethought. And so it just creates these huge disincentives for people to seek out, 
the sex ed that they really do need and that's out there so that you know you can put it out there and a lot of people aren't going to come get it because of what that what they've been told that means to go look for it it's really it seems like uh the biggest barrier is the desire to not have to go and look for it yeah which is why sex ed needs to be comprehensive and compulsory because <laughs> you can you can give your kid the best sex education in the world you can either make sure they're in a school with a really good comprehensive sex ed program and i promise you they're not even if you think they are even if you're told they have a really good comprehensive sex ed program they don't because mostly what uh is presented as good comprehensive sex ed is good comprehensive reproductive biology which is not sex um you know any idiot can make a baby bristol palin made two uh and you can cover reproductive biology in about 11 minutes and you can cover birth control uh in about 11 uh, bonus minutes what screws people up about sex what gets them in trouble what they need an education about is talking people into fucking you <laughs> which is a bigger conversation about desire uh, about uh, who, to whom you're attracted about what you want to do and about uh asking for and obtaining or granting your consent or getting their consent and that kind of sex ed we don't have because we feel like we shouldn't, you know, even if we're going to give them information about how to put a condom on, we don't want to tell them how to talk somebody into uh, getting into a situation with them where they need to put a condom on when that is actually where people get hurt in the, in the negotiations around sex. So sex ed that doesn't negotiate or sex ed that doesn't teach negotiation and granting or obtaining consent, sex ed that doesn't talk about pleasure, the giving and getting of it. Uh, which brings you into a world of such a subjective uh, conversation because pleasure is so idiosyncratic and personal that one person's sexual pleasure is another person's uh, sexual trauma. And how do we talk about all that? And we, so we don't talk about any of that. And then kids fly blind, young people fly blind uh, into situations that they're not prepared for, where they go into partnered sex knowing how to put a condom on a banana, knowing how, you know, knowing what a zygote is, but not knowing how to articulate their desires, not knowing how to draw their partners out about their desires, not knowing about how to obtain affirmative consent, not knowing how to talk someone into having sex with you. <laughs> That's consensual and joyful and pleasurable. And until we teach that, uh, we really don't have sex ed. I, uh, I recently spoke with Jonathan Zimmerman about his book, Too Hot to Handle, uh, which covers the history of sex ed. Um, and a theme he keeps coming back to is how there's this, this tension in sex ed about how we need to somehow educate without titillating. But sex is kind of an inherently titillating topic, and it doesn't seem like we can really make it boring. So is that <laughs> goal even really possible? It is. It's impossible to educate without titling when it comes to sex, just like it's impossible to educate without boring the fuck out of when it comes to, I don't know, engineering, trying to think of something that bores me, um, chemicals. Uh, and one of the freedoms that we have, you know, those of us working in a pop culture space instead of in a high school classroom is we can be just straight up titillating and, not, and without having to be, uh, without having to apologize for it or without having to risk getting fired for it. Um, you know, sometimes we have conversations on the podcast with people, uh, where I will literally say that's so sexy. That's so hot. Oh my God. Send me a, I've literally told people on the air, send me a picture. When you do this, I want to see the video. Could you imagine somebody <laughs> sitting in a sex ed club in a classroom? Just acknowledge, and not, I'm not really saying at those moments, I really want the video because I kind of really don't. Um, I'm one of those rare men who doesn't really like pornography that much, even though I'm a big defender of it. 
Um, I'm, you know, these are gendered things I'm getting into and, you know, seven point, 3.5 billion men, 3.5 billion women, there'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions, but typically men like, you know, video porn more than women do. Women like stories more than men do. Hence 50 shades of gray, as opposed to, you know, 5,000 channels of porn for the dudes. But I'm more like the girls who like the, the stories, but I will say like, send it. Oh my God, send me the video. That's so hot. And I don't mean really send me the video. What I mean is just acknowledging with that sort of jokey aside that what we're talking about isn't just plumbing and it isn't just uh, interpersonal relationships. It's also kind of titillating. It's also kind of sexy. It seems like that is part of what makes talking about sex really interesting is the fact that it's a little bit titillating, the fact that it kind of can push some buttons sometimes. But people really freak out when we talk or think about titillation and people, people's kids. Yeah. Yeah. But where are they going to go for this information? And right now what we're doing is, uh, just allowing it, allowing porn to, to rush in and allowing porn to have those conversations, allowing kids to infer from those images how it's supposed to work and what consent is and isn't and what pleasure is and isn't. And that's dangerous. That sets our kids up for sexual trauma and not just being on the receiving end of sexual trauma, but also inflicting sexual trauma. Uh, potentially, and unintentionally uh, afflicting sexual trauma. Um, you know, I know, I, I hear from people who, through inexperience and assumptions driven by porn, bumbled into situations where they were doing what they thought they were supposed to do, they, what they thought other people liked or expected of them, and are absolutely traumatized at having traumatized someone. They're not monsters. They didn't go in wanting to shred someone. But they did because they didn't know anything about what they were doing except what they had seen on their computers or phones. So are you aware of uh, anyone or any program that's doing sex ed really well or at least better than standard? I, I often hear really wonderful things about the Universalist Unitarians. I, I'm going to butcher their, their church name, UAA, that they do have a really good sex ed program. And a lot of people who are UAA kids rave about it and tell me that it touches, tags a lot of the bases that I uh, rant about when I talk about lousy sex ed. But how many people are UAA? How many kids are being brought up in that church? Very, very few. You know, that's why we want good and comprehensive and decent sex ed that also covers consent and pleasure and everything else. How you talk, you want to fucking you to be compulsory and universal itself, because I could give my kid the best sex education in the world, but then my kid could end up in bed with your kid who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing and didn't have sex ed and hurts my kid. That is the inherent problem in leaving sex education up to individual parents, I guess, is that sex is at least a two-person game in a lot of situations. So right. it's not just about prepping your own kids. Exactly. And our kids aren't growing up on sex at island far, far, far from your kids growing up on sex ignorance island. And our two kids could meet. <laughs> right. And hopefully my kid in that situation is going to educate your kid. But just as likely is your kid is going to traumatize mine. I've noticed that you're really conscious of gender norms and roles and how they can trip us up when you give a lot of the sex and relationship advice that you give. Uh, is this something that you've always thought very carefully about or something that you've learned <laughs> over time? I have learned it over time. I've learned <laughs> it writing this column and talking to people. You know, I was uh, gay in 26 and when I started writing Savage Love and just not in 
this gendered space. Although, you know, gender norms can totally impact same-sex relationships and people who are homos can, the stuff is so thick, you know, the soup is so thick that we can be uh, impacted by it too. But just, you know, seeing these patterns over the years and sometimes you get grief and it's weird because people will say, uh, women are, you know, policed, slut shamed, uh, fear sexual violence is all this, all these social pressures, uh, and psychosocial pressures on women that really can warp their lives and really do tremendous emotional harm. And then if I turn around and say, you're acting like a girl here, this is girl stuff and you need to stop it. I will get people yelling at me that that's unfair and sexist. And I don't think that's unfair and sexist. You know, women have all this heaped on them around being the the monogamous ones being the nurturers the repairers of relationships um and not and deferring to men which is a huge problem to be to have the culture uh raise you to be uh groom you to be at all times deferential to men and more concerned with the male ego than your own safety and then to be in sexual relationships with men, having been uh, really disabled in a way, hamstrung in a way, you know, rendered almost incapable of uh, defending yourself or uh, um, what's the word I want? Uh, agitating for yourself. There's a different word, um, but I can't think of it. because I smoke <laughs> um, So I find myself constantly, particularly on the podcast, saying, you know, we get a million questions from women, adult women who say, you know, there's something I have to tell my boyfriend, my husband. And, you know, it's about, he hurts me when we have sex, where this is, you know, making me miserable. And he's not going to like hearing this from me. How can I best say it so that I don't hurt his feelings? He doesn't get upset and he doesn't think I'm mad at him. And I don't get those questions from men ever. How do I say this without hurting her feelings? Ever, ever. Men uh, go into those relationships speaking up about what they want and feeling completely entitled. And women have to be encouraged to feel as entitled to uh, defend themselves and and. God, I can't think of the word. I keep coming on agitate. It's not agitate. Advocate for themselves. Advocate for themselves in their sexual romantic relationships. It is one of those things that is really frustrating because I think it's something that's talked about a lot in feminist circles or that women talk about with each other. But it it doesn't always, I think, get talked about with the guys in the room. And so it is an important thing to put out there more generally than just when the girls get together and have some wine and have these conversations. And the girls get together and have some wine and begin strategizing how to tell something to a guy without him realizing you're criticizing her. Literally, that's often how it's framed. I want to tell this to him, this thing that's criticizing, you know, the way he treats me, the way he kisses, the way we have sex, the way whatever, but I don't want him to realize that I'm criticizing him or that I'm unhappy with whatever it is that's being discussed. Uh, and that's just impossible. <laughs> you know, I want to give him a suppository, but I want him to think I'm rimming him. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, I've also heard uh, that you say in another interview that you sometimes feel sorry for the straight guys when it comes to navigating <laughs> sex topics. Can you unpack that a little bit too? Uh, you know, when I was 26 and gay, uh, I really hated straight guys and I had fled to a theater department where I was the only out gay guy. And then I went to Europe and I kind of only hung out with gay guys and I joined a gay theater and then I was an act up and coordination and I was just like, gay and kind of ran from straight people and ran from straight guys, uh, and was angry with them. And then I began to get their mail and I began to, uh, empathize with their plight because to be gay, uh, you really have kind of freed yourself and a lot of straight guys are not very free. I mean, just think, you know, I'm gay and I'm 50 and I had sex with uh, a few girls when I was a young person. 
And I can just be completely upfront about that. And nobody screams at me that I must secretly be straight or I couldn't have done that thing with women. But a straight guy who had a couple of sexual experiences with a man or with men can't admit it to anybody because no one will ever think he's straight. That straight guys are constantly paranoid that someone's going to think they're straight. Just, just reading the mail over these, like, am I normal? And I want to wear my girlfriend's panties or letters from girls saying my boyfriend likes it when I play with his nipples. Does that mean he's gay? That there's just this constant scrutiny on straight guys where their heterosexuality, their sexuality is just so precariously balanced on normative behaviors and normative desires that the rest of us are completely freed from. Like, I'm gay and I can, I could leave this hotel room I'm in after speaking with you and go have sex with a woman and still be gay. And no one is going to doubt that I'm gay, right? They're just going to be like, wow, crazy, Dan Savage had sex with a girl last night. That's weird. That, what was that f- doing? Crazy f- <laughs> but everyone still think I was gay. But uh, a straight guy doesn't have the same latitude. And yeah. really, you know, reading the mail over the years, straight guys are this bundle. You know, straight uh, for many, as experienced by many straight guys, heterosexual male identity is this bundle of two negatives. It's not being a girl and not being a homo. And so anything that you're interested in sexually, socially, um, artistically, that's gay or girly is can disqualify you. It's and really... on top of that, like all that sympathy for how paranoid and policed male heterosexuality is, and not just by male heterosexuality sexuals by girls by their girlfriends by gay guys who insist that a guy who is you know attractive and straight who made out with one guy once at a party couldn't possibly be straight um on top of that is the how much harder it is to get laid if you're straight (laughs) and straight guys are at once the you know they suffer from that they're also the authors of it uh when straight guys say to me why don't women jump into bed like gay men do and i have to i look at them and say sexual violence that's why because the the consequences for a woman of being sexually impulsive are so much greater because of intimate partner violence because of rape because of the risk of sexually transmitted infections is greater passing from male to female because of the consequences of an unplanned pregnancy fall disproportionately almost entirely on her shoulders that's why but but largely it's the fear of male violence that somehow in a lot of gay relationships relationships seems to be canceled out by the sense of he's as powerful potentially as I am, or I'm not as entitled to him as, uh, you know, a straight guy might feel entitled to women because we're both dudes and equally entitled. But it just, it's toxic. You know, there was this famous study from years ago where, where they sent attractive female college students out to ask random male college students if they wanted to have sex right then. And a lot of those guys said yes. And then they sent attractive male college students out to approach female college students with the same question. And most of them said no. Almost all of them said no. And then they did, they replicated that experiment very recently. And that's a famous experiment, I think, 30 years ago. They replicated it very recently where they controlled for physical safety. And you're not going to get raped by this person or murdered by this person or, you know, uh, abused by this person and it's going to be perfectly safe and women said yes just as often as men did when there was a control for physical safety it, going back to what you said about the sort of precarious nature of male straight identity it does seem that we've given other groups the freedom to experiment or the freedom to try something new that we really haven't given men i, I just think as well you know when you hear about women experimenting with Sleeping with other, other women or sleeping with men. It, it by, seems identif- we sort of like, we sort all of All those lesbian off. identified by women out there, by dicks who say, I'm a lesbian. I'm a bi, you know, I'm a, a lesbian identified by woman. And people are like, all right, do you imagine somebody saying I'm a straight identified by guy or I'm straight, but I've had sex with other men and I do semi regularly, but I'm a straight guy? No one would believe him. People would insist that he was gay or bi or, you know, probably just gay because a lot of people don't think bi guys are a thing that exists, right? 
So why is straight male identity like the last big hurdle? Why why are we so like <laughs> hanging on to that one as like, no, we can't let this one go? I don't know. I don't know. Because maybe it's... Uh, Maybe it's regarded as the most important one, and certainly the one uh, against which others are measured um, and and found lacking. Like you know, people who look down on gay people, gay men, is because we're not straight enough, because we're not straight guys. And if you're going to uh, condemn or attack other people based on how far they fall from what it means to be a straight man, then you also have to police other straight men around about their behavior and their choices and what they're doing. And it's not like people don't police gay men and condemn gay men. It's just gay men who are out and healthy about it don't care. It's also interesting to me that the straight male identity seems to be so wrapped up in what it isn't. So it's not exactly. gay men. It's not being a woman. But like, what is it exactly? So I know what it's not, but what is it? <laughs> That, that's um, my question. <laughs> it is It is not just to be attracted to women, but a very particular type of woman. So straight guys who are 100% straight in every way, no interest in, and no experience with any same sex, anything, and no desire to ever, you know, never met the one guy who blipped under their radar, but who are attracted to heavy women will, will be in the closet about that because they are so terrified at being non-normative because to be a straight male is to be completely normative and to be attracted to women who weigh 200, 300, 400 pounds as opposed to women who weigh 98 pounds can get you thrown off straight guy island because you're a freak that's not normal straight guys are supposed to be normal i don't get questions from gay gay guys don't write me saying this is what i want to do is that normal i get that question from straight guys every day so uh, switching gears a little bit um i have been listening to the podcast and reading the column for a while and uh, in the last little while i've noticed more and more science popping up in particular a lot more sex research was this a conscious addition or something that just kind of <laughs> organically happened it just kind of organically happened you know every once in a while i, I have friends in the sex research in science communities. And every once in a while I would pull them in and then they started introducing me to other people. And I just gradually developed more and more of an interest in it. And, you know, I'd often seek out guest experts. Uh, and I like to level the field when it comes to guest experts. I think somebody who is a sex worker, to circle back to that example, can be more of an expert on sex work than a lot of people who uh, do science about it. So I will have a sex worker on to speak about sex work and then have, with equal footing, equal respect, and equal deference, someone who's a scientist on to talk about their research. Um, and I think that is important, but I love having scientists on. I, I just love them. And we, we created on the podcast because we have much more room, much more space, much more time on the podcast than in the column, those what you got segments. Because there's constantly this churn with like new studies coming out, new studies coming out. And there's not a lot of places in uh, pop culture land to really unpack them at any length or leisure. Have, have you always been interested in following sex research and what's going on in sex science? <laughs> I haven't, but I became interested in it while I was doing Savage Love. It seems uh, like you probably couldn't avoid it, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I guess I got dragged in. <laughs> well, it didn't sound like you kicked or screamed too hard. So no, no, and uh, it's really fun. It's really fun to see people working so hard in this social science to measure what can be so uh, you know fleeting and, and fluid, and to try to like hammer it down and, and put a nail in it and measure it uh, can be really challenging. And so to talk to people who have successfully done that is always really thrilling. Going back to what you said before about leveling the playing field for experts, it it is really interesting and I think somewhat unusual for people to use the phrase expert to refer to someone who is an expert in a certain topic like being a dom or an expert uh, sex worker. Um, mm. So what is your sort of qualification for a sex expert? <laughs> Actually, I always use uh, sex expert kind of in italics and quotes. 
Um, it's just such a, or sexpert, which I hate even more. Um, that is a horrible word. Yeah. We are each of us experts, uh, on our own sexualities. Uh, hopefully, you know, every, we all live with our own sexualities and, you know, we all have to come to an understanding of ourselves. So we're an expert, uh, from our knees to our navels. If we're, uh, at our necks to the tops of our heads, if with any luck, um, you know, but some people have read about it and thought about it more and done more research into it. Uh, and I guess they deserve, um, the, uh, honorific sex expert or expert drop of sex. Uh, I don't feel like I'm a sex expert. I'm often putting my foot in it. I'm often uh, learning as I go. When you, one of the great scams of writing an advice column or doing a sex advice podcast is that you appear to have all the answers because you don't print the questions you don't have answers for. <laughs> um, and oftentimes, you know, you get a question about something and you don't have the answer and you go find it and then you write the column as if you knew it all along. So one of the interesting things as well about your show, especially when you get on experts, is when you have a disagreement about what the best advice is. And I think that's really valuable for people listening, paying attention, because some of the stuff isn't just there's not an easy answer for some of it. And, and people have different experiences and different points of view that will feed into maybe what the best possible answer for them is. So exactly. I think some of my favorite segments from uh, the podcast specifically are, are those really good argument segment segments where someone comes on and the advice you guys have is completely different. And then you have a conversation about sort of unpacking what those differences are and where they come from and what the different points of view are. Because I think that is really valuable as well to have that, that argument for people. And, and what that puts across to people and what I always like to remind people of is it's advice not binding arbitration. And this is, you know, if I have nobody else there with me uh, answering a particular question, it's just my opinion. Take into consideration. You ask me for my opinion. You still get to make your own mind up and I could be wrong. And so to have people on the show who disagree with me and they may not look at me and scream, you're wrong, but implicitly they're telling me I'm wrong, uh, models that like people have to think for themselves. And ultimately people do, uh, I get a lot of sometimes uh, blowback or angry feedback from people who thought my advice to this particular person or that particular person was bad and the assumption is always that person did exactly what I told them to do. Not that person could think about what I told them to do just like you did and come to their own conclusion, including a differing conclusion. And we have to entertain the possibility that you could be wrong, not just me. Uh, but that everybody I give advice is this sort of helpless, uh, pathetic, willless, uh, brainless uh, idiot who just did exactly what I told them to do. And that's not true. And and when I have people on who disagree with me, I think that helps clarify that, that this is just food for thought. You got to make up your own mind, got to make your own choices. I'm not making your choices for you, uh, nor is the guest making your choices for you. So uh, we're pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to ask you, what, what do you think is the best part about the work you get to do every day? Reading the mail. You know, to, to, to open up the email in the morning and see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters from people who trust your judgment, who feel comfortable and safe with you opening up about whatever. Also, lots of emails, people yelling at me about what they disagree with me about, which I enjoy. <laughs> I'm Irish Catholic. We argue. That's what we do. Um, is, you know, it's kind of an honor. It feels really good and it's entertaining. You know, I could be an engineer and get a million emails every day about, bridge trusses or whatever it is engineers worry about. And I don't think I could sustain an interest in that myself. <laughs> Personally, I'd rather hear about people's fisting misadventures. Dan, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much. I had a really good time.
If you want to learn more about Dan Savage, his many various projects, or his books, we've got links ready for you on our website, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. And speaking of our website, you can also find links to us on Twitter and Facebook, and also links to subscribe to the show in the podcasting app of your choice. We are a listener-supported show. Without you, we couldn't make this show happen every week. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support the show with a monthly donation and get extra content, including extra content for this episode, that didn't make it into the final cut. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.